So, we're in week three of Rubble to Return, and um, just kind of cards on the table. Um, I got to this section this week, and it was like, huh, I really didn't know that section was in the Bible. And it's one of those that I've read before, and then when I got to it, and even when I was kind of preparing um, a year ago and looking at calendars and stuff, and I looked through this, I was like, yeah, it'll be fine. And I got there, and I turned there this week, and it was like, huh, what in the world do you do with that? How do you, not, not only how do you preach that, like, what is it even, what's the point of it at all? And so it was this kind of wrestling match this week of trying to figure out, like, where, where do you go with this section? And so we're going to be in Ezra 7 through 10 um, this morning, if you want to kind of turn there, and we'll get there in a few moments. But it, it is kind of a, a difficult section. Um, Christian Morgan, actually, this morning, he had his microphone on, and he said, hey, I'm going to preach for you today. And I almost said, okay, you, you, good luck, have fun. <laughs> Um, but I, I think we can get somewhere with this text that'll be um, hopefully helpful. There might not be a nice little book into this one um, where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, but um, I, I hope it'll help you to grow as a follower of Jesus. So Israel has been waiting for 70 years to return, and then last week we talked about this return, the first return where they build the temple. Um, and in this, there is this prophetic hope that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah want you to have. That we're going to return and rebuild the city. That ultimately all nations and all kingdoms are going to be under the rule and the reign of Yahweh, the Lord our God. And that Messiah will sit on the throne. And that was the hope. That is what they are waiting for. And so for 70 years, they had been exiled. For 70 years waiting. And they get to return home and build this temple. And I thought, well, as we get into this next section, it might be really helpful to hit pause for just a moment and talk about the structure of the two books. Um, because without understanding really the structure and how these books work together, it's really difficult to understand this section and maybe some things that we could walk away with. And so there's a structure to this book. There are three main parts um, to this. There's Ezra 1 through 6, which we did last week, which they rebuild the temple. There is Ezra 7 through 10, which we're going to do this week, is Torah and the identity of the people. And then what we'll do next week is Nehemiah 1 um, through 7, and they rebuild the walls. But there is a pattern to these three sections. Right? It begins with a decree from the king. God raises up a leader. They face opposition. And then there is this kind of anticlimactic resolution to the opposition, to the problem that they're facing. And it kind of runs through all three of these sections where it happens just the same way with this structure. And then there's this bottom section where you get to chapters 8 through 10, and it's really kind of asking, okay, is this the prophetic fulfillment that we've been looking for? Is this the hope that Israel has been waiting for? And then you get to Nehemiah 13, and it's kind of like, well, let's see. So, Going to this next one, Here, here's how last week's really works in the whole scheme of things. Right? So there's a king decree by Cyrus. 
God raises up Zerubbabel to be the leader. They start this process of building the temple, and then they face opposition because they won't let these other people join them in this. And so then they face this opposition. And then, because of the opposition, everything stalls, it comes to a halt, and there's about a 15-year period where nothing happens until the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, for that matter, stand up and say, hey, you need to rebuild the temple. And I think they're sitting here like, well, we can't, there's a, a problem. And he goes, it doesn't matter. And then King Darius offers and gives a new decree, and they start building the temple, and the temple is rebuilt, and they celebrate Passover. And it is this um, kind of anticlimactic moment because it happens, but as the people look at it, there's some people who are really upset and sad because this is not like the old temple. This is not what we expected it to be. So, this week and, and next week, the king is going to be Artaxerxes. This week's Ezra, next week's Nehemiah. And so we're going to kind of jump in and look at this center section of the, the passage. And if you'll remember going back, you know, you, you kind of ask the question, how did they get here? Right? How did, how did they get to where they're at in exile? Because this story, we pick up on a return. And week one, we did this autopsy. Remember the autopsy of Israel and Judah? And kind of looking at how they got there. Because if you don't know what it is that led you there, most likely you will not be able to get out. And if you do manage to get out, it may be really easy to fall back into the same patterns and find yourself there once again. And so as we look at this book and the structure and you ask, well, so is revival happening? And if it doesn't happen, then why? Because they're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to try to restore the Torah and this sense of community. They're going to rebuild the walls of the city. And it asks the question, well, okay, so if revival does not happen, why? And I want to kind of give you a little lead-in to why it possibly doesn't happen when it looks like everything is poised for it to happen. And it goes back to what the prophets told the people in the first place as exiles. Jeremiah said it. Ezekiel said it. Right? Ezekiel says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from, from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. All right, so you can do all the right things. But if this isn't right, if this isn't revived, then all the other stuff you do may not matter. 
And so we look back at that autopsy and we ask the question, what, what is it that led them there? It was their heart. It was the heart of the people that got into this, that put them in this place. And so one of the things that's really difficult, I think, for us to kind of grasp is the book of Ezra, you hope to see this major revival. But maybe the big point of Ezra is that if God does not revive the heart of the people, despite your best efforts, revival will not happen. You can build the temple. You can build the walls. You can bring people back to the Torah. But if things don't change here, then everything else we're doing may not make a difference. It might not change things. And the answer to how do we get there then is a word humility it's the willingness to humble yourself before God and say God this is yours do with it as you will change me transform me and so I want to kind of start real quick before we look into Ezra and what's happening. At Go back one to the, the structure, sorry, of the book. There we go. Um, I want to start here with this decree by the king, by Artaxerxes. He's going to write a letter to the people right, and give them a decree. And in it, he's going to say, basically, it's time for you to go back to Jerusalem and that you're going to take silver and gold from the treasury and the people, and it's going to help basically finance this move and allow you to offer sacrifices to God, that you're going to appoint judges and leaders, and you're going to set up your own community here in Jerusalem, and your people are going to be obedient to the law of your God. Right? And, and so if a foreign king would do this, he would send them into the city and they would still have to pay tribute taxes and all of this to them, but they could be a lot happier doing it if they had the freedom to worship their God. And so he sends them back to Jerusalem and he sends them back with this blessing really to rebuild the community of the people of God. And so there's two prominent themes in this section, 7 through 10, that I want to look at real quick. Okay? One is Ezra is the new Moses, all right? and it's going to come up um, throughout this section. And then two, Ezra is a scholar and a teacher and is interpreting the law and applying it to real life. All right, so there's two kind of things, big things that are happening in this section. One, he's trying to say, hey, here's the new Moses. Right? Here's the prophetic hope. Here's Israel returning and rebuilding and becoming the people of God as they were supposed to be. And then Ezra's kind of dealt this really difficult theological question and situation. 
and said, there, there you go, you can deal with it now. And I think he tries to do his very best to kind of look at Scripture and what he has from God's Word and say, okay, this is what we should do in this situation. Make sense? Okay, hopefully it will in just a minute. So, first, Ezra, this new Moses. Here's how we're introduced to Ezra. Chapter 1, I'm sorry, 7, verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Shariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and we're going to skip a bunch of names in here because he gives this lineage, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. And so he gives this kind of introduction to Ezra, giving his family history, his family tree, all the way back to Aaron, who would have been the high priest when Moses was the leader of the people. And so he's trying really early in the story to make this connection for you. And then he says this, this Ezra came up from Babylon. Just to pause real quick, geographically, Babylon is not up. Babylon would be down. But Moses brought the people up from Egypt. And so he's using this language on purpose. Up from Babylon, he was the teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. So, again, he's trying to mirror something. Okay, Verse 9, he begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, the Exodus, first day of the first month, okay? And he arrived in Jerusalem the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Verse 10, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to the teaching and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So he's setting you up. He's trying to say, hey, here is the hope. We've been waiting for this Messiah. We've been waiting for a new leader to usher in the Messiah. Could this be him? Could this be what we've been waiting for, searching for, hoping for? So question. What event is Ezra trying to mirror for us? The Exodus. He's specifically using language to draw these connections for us. To say, hey, here is the new Moses. Here is the one who is bringing the hope of Israel and maybe the final fulfillment of our prophetic hope. And then there are some other things that kind of happen here additionally. Right? Um, they get support from the temple treasury. Right? When they left Egypt, they were plundering, and they took silver and gold and all these items with them. They appoint, he's going to appoint judges and leaders. At one point, they get ready to go, and they say, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. We don't have any Levites. 
And so they gather these Levites together to help them on this journey to be the priests. And then finally, when he does gather these people to kind of lead, he gets three leadership families, and he gets 12 other families, which three and 12 is pretty significant in Israel, right? There's three patriarchs, there's 12 tribes, and so he's trying to help us make this connection that this is the prophetic hope finally, we think, going to be realized. And then he says this in Ezra 8, 21. There by Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. Now, um, here the NIV kind of doesn't help us out. Because the way they translate this is accurate, yes, but again, it misses one of those connecting points. Like literally, here's what it should read. Go to that next slide. Proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek of Him a straight way for us. Does that sound familiar at all? Like, because you're supposed to be getting, if you're a Bible nerd, sorry, I mean, you're supposed to be getting these echoes from Isaiah. Right? In Isaiah chapter 40, here's what Isaiah says A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Right, so again, these connections back to this prophetic hope. Like something is happening right now in Israel. This is pretty significant. This is pretty important. Pay attention. We're returning. We're rebuilding. Is this going to be the time when God brings all the kingdoms under him? Is this going to be the time that Messiah sits on the throne? So, going to this next, we have Artaxerxes, God raises up Ezra, so we have our king's decree, we have our leader raised, what should come next? Opposition, right? We have our king's decree, we have our leader, God is raised up, now comes opposition. And so someone's going to come to Ezra and say, hey, we have a problem, all of Israel is intermarried, and this creates a big problem for us. So Ezra, chapter 9. After these things had been done, right, after they've returned, they're, they're kind of establishing themselves, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate 
from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Amorites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led them the way in this unfaithfulness. So he brings that into this problem. Hey, everyone in Israel has gotten intermarried and really defiled what he calls a holy race. The literal translation is like a holy seed. He's messed this, or we've messed this up. And so Ezra is brought this concern and said, hey, here you go. Here's a big problem. You can deal with it. And I think Ezra's probably like, okay, let's jump in there. So, is there, there there are 613 laws in the Torah, right? Is there a law in the Torah against marrying a non-Israelite? 613 laws. Is there a law that says you shall not marry someone who is not a Jew? And so I want to give you a really simple, straightforward answer. Um, Yes, I'm, I'm sorry, no, but possibly maybe yes. So crystal clear, right? Um, so, so one, no, there is not a law against it. But I want you to think back to some of the leaders. Are, are there any main characters in the story of Israel who were married to non-Jews? Any? Abraham? Joseph? Moses? Boaz? And we could probably throw some more in there. Those are some pretty big ones. And so, no, there is not specifically a law that says you should not do this. However, and I think what Ezra is relying on and falling back on, is maybe there are some stories from the history of Israel that help set a precedence on how we should interpret and how we should respond in this situation. Okay? So, go back to Exodus chapter 34. Um, Just kind of setting it up. God is giving them them the law. Um, He's come down to the mountain. He's found that they created this golden calf. Moses gets mad, breaks the tablets. Um, He goes back up on the mountain and meets with God. Um, and God tells him, hey, here's the new tablets, um, and here's what you're going to do now. Okay? And so he says to the people, obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. Are you able to translate these? I, I just thought about you. All right, good. <laughs> I, sorry. <laughs> Think of weird things when you're... Um, Hivites and Jebusites, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. 
break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. Um, And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. So question, was God's biggest concern that the people would marry and defile a holy race? Or was he worried that if you married people who served these gods, you would follow suit? Was it about a holy race or a holy people? Because there's a difference. Was it just we want this holy race? Y'all see why this is so fun to preach, right? Holy race or a holy people? Right? God was trying to form His people on earth. So, if you think back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes this letter back Um, in the days of, man, I didn't even look back at that, Zedekiah. He writes a letter to to Israel. I'm sorry, during Josiah's reign. Sorry, sorry, sorry. He writes this letter and he tells them that you're going to go as exiles for 70 years. And I want you to go move into this land and I want you to settle down there, and I want you to build homes, and I want you to marry, and I want your sons and daughters to marry, and I want you to increase. So, so even in this letter, they're commanded to go and continue. And Ezra doesn't say, like, hey, um, just make sure it's only Israelites you marry. Right? And, and so in this exile, they are mixed. Right? They're, they're mixed together. With these other people, they're in exile with. And so Ezra is this Torah scribe, this scholar, a teacher, and he's given this situation that's not just black and white, and he's trying, I think, his very best to interpret and say, here's how we move on from this. And so right after this, There's this gut-wrenching prayer that Ezra offers of, God, we've really messed up. And he includes himself in that as the people who have messed up. We've really messed up, and we've given ourselves away, and we haven't followed you. And then comes a solution, right? So we we have so far, um, Artaxerxes, Ezra, they've intermarried. So Ezra has a solution, right? Mass divorce. Everyone who's done it, go get a divorce. 
Okay? So Ezra chapter 10. You know, this is why I was so excited about this passage, right? While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping, and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men and women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Um, then Shechaniah, sorry, son of Jehil, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. And the people say, rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. And I read that, and it's like, wait a minute. That's your solution? Does that make things better? That now there are all these widows? There are all these children without... Does that make it better? I don't know. I don't know if that's what God was really hoping for. I don't know that God would have said, hey, here's my solution. Everyone go get a divorce. And so they put this council together, because it's raining outside and they don't want to be out in the rain. And they put this council together. And they go back and they say, we're going to figure out everyone's family tree. And then we're just going to name all of those off who have intermarried, basically. And, and some scholars even believe they could have gone back like ten generations. I don't, I don't know if that's adequate or if that's true or not. But they do this thorough investigation of everyone. And they say, here are the people who have intermarried. They should get a divorce. And then the book of Ezra ends. And I was looking at other preachers that I listened to at times, like, how, do, how have they preached this? Here, I, I couldn't find anyone who's actually preached this. <laughs> Evidently, everyone just skips this, but I thought it would be fun to dive into and maybe ask some questions. And maybe not walk away with a beautiful sermon with a point and all of this, but maybe to walk away with some questions. Is a book as a whole? Is Ezra really the new Moses? Is he the one that they've been waiting for? Hoping for? Is this what God's kingdom is going to look like? Is He Messiah? Or is He preparing the way for the Messiah? Is this prophetic hope really coming to pass? Is this the moment we've been waiting for? And, and so I said, there, there's not a lot of like, 
hey, here's the nice little bow on this, but, but some things I was kind of thinking as I was reading through this. Because it's not really a holy race, it's a holy people. And the reason God gave them that was so that they would follow Him together. And I think it brings up the question like, okay, so if you're married to an unbeliever, what does that mean? And I think Peter and Paul both address that, right? That you're not going to divorce them, but you're going to offer grace to them. And in that, they are going to see the beauty of Jesus, and you're going to win them over. But I also think it speaks profoundly to those who are dating and the importance of pursuing other people who are pursuing what you are pursuing. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're in a dating relationship, that other person should be pursuing Jesus as well. Because it's really hard to be in a relationship with someone who's not pursuing that and you continue to pursue it. And so you're in, in junior high and high school and you're starting to say, hey, they, they look pretty cute or they're pretty handsome. Like, just stop before you even do that. And simply ask the question, do they have a heart for Jesus? Do they love Him? Is He going to shape our dating relationship? Is He going to shape our marriage? Secondly, is it possible to use Scripture in a way that hurts other people? Is it possible to use Scripture in a way that it becomes a weapon? And you can say, well, but it's supposed to be the sword, right? The sword of the Spirit. And it's supposed to cut deep. But the problem was it was supposed to cut deep within you as you read it. Not that you would use it to cut other people. It will do that for itself. It is powerful enough to do. And so we, with love and grace and mercy, can share that truth and trust that the power of God's Spirit has the ability to do that. Because it's possible to use Scripture in a way that ends up hurting people and pushing them further and further away rather than bringing them closer to God. And I think it's when we try to enter, enter or impose ourselves into the situation and say, here, here, here's what you should do. Rather than saying, here, here's the Word and allow it to transform. Right? Third, ultimately, 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 the same thing that got them there is the reason we're not seeing this massive, massive revival. It was the problem of the heart. And until the heart changed and was transformed, then revival wasn't going to happen. And that, I would say, is the same for you and I. Like, we can do all the right stuff. We can be great leaders. We can have a great vision, a great plan. 
But if it doesn't start here, and God reviving the heart of His people, then it doesn't really matter what else we do. That we need Him to transform and change us first. Father, we thank You so much for this day. We thank You for difficult texts. Um, Father, not just um, easy, understandable. Father, um, I, I pray that somehow today Your Spirit is at work through these words and through this message. Um, Father, that we trust You. Um, and Father, we, we thank You so much for Your Word that speaks to us and that is for our good. Father, may we find hope today in Jesus. Amen.